I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this episode of The Trade Guys, we'll talk all things digital with a very special guest, Victoria Espinel of BSA, the Software Alliance. From USMCA to the EU to the WTO, we'll unpack the complicated world of digital trade, and we'll make some predictions about what's to come. Victoria, we're so excited to have you here today. Um, I'm really excited because I love the issues that you work on. I think they're some of the most important issues in the world. But first, you have to tell us, I know what BSA is, but what does it stand for? So um, our focus is enterprise. Our focus is the software industry. And and the perspective that we take on issues is the perspective of enterprise is the perspective of software companies that are selling to other businesses. So what our companies do, the really important thing about what our companies do is they let other companies do what they do even better. I love our issues. I think they're enormously important to the economy. I think they're hard issues, and so we have a really smart team to back them up. But one of the things that I really love about the industry that I represent and what the software industry is doing is not only does it have an enormous impact on how people live their lives, but in terms of the economy and every industry sector that exists right now, letting them do what they do even better is the mission of our companies. And it's a fantastic place to be. Okay. So tell us about the companies you represent because it's a who's who of the most important companies in the world. So we, so we represent the software industry and we take the enterprise perspective. You know, our members range from companies like uh, Microsoft and Apple and IBM and Oracle that are I've very large companies. Um, Bill, have you heard of those? A few of them, yes. All right, Scott, yes. you <laughs> definitely have heard of those. Definitely. Uh, All right, yeah. But, you know, we have, we have some companies that are still in their VC funding days. Many of our companies um, are based here in the United States all of our companies are global, so that's one of the reasons that we care about trade so much and, and all the issues that we work on. We work on them around the world. One of the things that I really like about our organization, BSA, is that we were born global. So we're headquartered in Washington, and obviously we care a great deal about what happens in the United States, but we have offices around the world, and we work on policy issues in real time around the world every day, and for trade, but also for privacy, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, for all the issues we work on, having that ability to interact with government officials and having that really strong base of relationships around the world is very important. Are your members all American companies? Do you have rules about that or do you have foreign members? No, we do not. So Siemens is a member. Trend Micro is a member at the global level and sit on the board. But in addition to that, we have a number of regional members and even country members um, that are you know, Australian-based software companies or Thai-based software companies. But could a Chinese company, for instance, be a member? So, you know, we're a nonprofit and we accept members if they are aligned with our mission. Right. Okay. So that makes aligned sense. with our policy positions. One of the things that I think is great about the organization is our members tend to be very tightly aligned in terms of their policy positions, fierce competitors in the marketplace, but very aligned in terms of the direction of policy. And what that lets us do is get really deep on the issues, very substantive and very into the details of issues and really try to push for outcomes because our companies 
are very aligned in terms of where policy should go. So when it comes to trade policy, what are BSA's main goals? And then I want to bring in the trade guys. They're chomping at the bit here. So, we, are, we are still here, yes. yes. <laughs> uh, you never have left. This is not a one-on-one interview. No, right? and you've never left. <laughs> so digital trade is not just of importance to the digital economy. It's now of importance to the entire economy. In fact, I think the whole distinction between digital economy and economy is, mm-hmm. is a false one at this point. It, it is the economy. But it is also true that at this moment in time, we don't have an international consensus on what the rules on digital trade should be. A lot of that focuses on data and data flows, and we'll probably talk about that, but that's certainly not the only digital trade issues. So stepping back, I think you know our long-term goal, our ambition, is to create a truly international widespread consensus on what digital trade rules should be, including on issues like data flows, because it's an enormous deficiency in the international legal system right now. And given the importance to the economy, it's also a completely unsustainable one. Let me push back a little bit on that. Noble goal, you've got countries that are going in very different directions on some of that stuff. So, so not an easy goal, so, but I think an imperative and essential one. And you know, as a former trade negotiator, I, I would not dismiss the, the difficulty of what we need to set out to do. But on the other hand, as I said, I think it's imperative. It's such an important part of the economy to have this lack of consensus, which either results in a lot of ambiguity and unpredictability, or as Bill said, countries that are going in very different directions. That is going to be a major impediment. To well, the consensus economy. used to be pretty easy. I remember back in the day in the 90s, uh, the moratorium on taxes of internet transactions was easy to, for everyone to adopt because no one had any revenue there anyway. So th- there was no tax revenue to be lost. Seems like those head nods are gone. Well, we're getting into a situation where as it becomes a bigger and bigger part of the way the world works, there are different points of view. How, how do you bridge those gaps now? Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think it was easier on tech issues, but certainly there are a number of trade issues that has been very difficult to get consensus on, and yet the United States has shown leadership, as have other countries, in trying to push. So, you know, one of the things that puts me in mind of is where intellectual property rules were in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. I think at that point, it was not as obvious to everyone how important intellectual property was going to be to the economy. I think the United States saw that it was extremely important to the United States and was going to be extremely important for the economy, for the global economy as a whole. And so the United States, because in the early 90s and mid-90s, started pushing to have intellectual property rules be part of the international legal system, be part of the international trade system, and the lead up to the negotiations around establishing the WTO. And at the time, that was very controversial. Like there, there was no sense that those should be part of the international trading rules. And it was really the United States and then a number of other countries like Japan joining in that effort that made that happen. And now I think you can debate whether or not you know, they were drafted in a way that's exactly correct and whether or not they need to be modified. Data is further along because we've Mm. negotiated rules in the context of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Rules have been negotiated in the context of the USMCA. So I think those building blocks are already established, but I think we're still relatively early days. Well, what were we worried about in the 90s? We were worried about CDs and movies being stolen. What, what, was the, what were the IP issues we were worried about then? So I think there were some counterfeit rules, but actually the trade provisions of the WTO span 
the whole range of intellectual property issues. So there are rules, sort of baseline rules set for copyright protections and how those work. There are rules set for patents, so the, the type of intellectual property that uh, protects inventions. There are rules set on trade secrets. There are rules set on enforcement of uh, against things like counterfeiting. But the WTO agreement on trade is actually fairly... It is broad. It covers every single it's type comprehensive of intellectual in, in the sense of every type of IP is covered. Now, the, the, the requirements, the obligations of the agreement are basically that you have a law, okay, and you implement it and you enforce it. Uh, so there's, there's some variation country by country in terms of the, the way the laws are, are administered. Uh, but there are some overall standards. But clearly, the TRIPS agreement was a breakthrough because it did cover all aspects of intellectual property. Well, you know why I thought of CDs? Because our audience can't see this. Because you love music? Well, I love music. <laughs> We're going to talk about that. But the reason I thought about CDs in particular is our audience can't see this. But Trade Guy Scott got some funky new glasses, and he's looking <laughs> extremely sharp, which made me think retro, which made me think CDs. <laughs> 90s. My son used to, uh, that's how he used to distribute his music on CDs. And of course. When he performed, he'd have a stack of them out front, and they'd sell them. Uh, not anymore. Oh, I remember the all, first CD I ever got. It was Bob Dylan's Oh Mercy. And it was recorded in New Orleans. Bob Dylan had moved to New Orleans to record with the Neville Brothers and a lot of other local musicians and Daniel Lenoir, the great producer. And they recorded right in, uh, in and around my neighborhood. Dylan lived around my neighborhood uptown. And they had a studio, a small studio in the French Quarter. It turned out some just fantastic music, resurrected Dylan's career. But, you know, that's another trade matter. That's fantastic. We need to get more music recorded in New Orleans. I know. Believe me. It should be like Nashville. Exactly. It should be like Nashville. That's something the city needs to work on. Well, the city needs technology. The city needs a technology corridor. The city needs to retain uh, the smart people who come out of Tulane, Xavier, LSU, and all the great schools that are down there. And it's growing, but it's not growing but fast you, enough. But you guys realize that in 30 years it's going to be underwater because of climate change. No, 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 no. Software jobs are up in Louisiana, 20%. It's actually one of the fastest growth rates in Is the United right? States. I so, did not and know it's, that. You know, and it's such a creative people there, so it completely makes sense. But they need to have even more investment. It's the greatest local music scene on the planet. Just make sure you have a boat in your backyard. That's all I have to say. <laughs> the policy changes you're talking about, uh, many of them do the brilliant policy making by the Clinton, the Clinton administration, <laughs> I need to say. Talk to us a little bit about the current administration, because when we talk about the current administration these days, it's all cars and steel and occasionally soybeans. Um, are they leading on, on your issues? Do you I, have an ongoing dialogue with them? So on digital trade, the administration has been really supportive. I think the team over at USTR has done a fantastic job. The provisions that were negotiated as part of the USMCA are very positive. They are at the level of TPP and then actually go beyond TPP in a couple of ways. Do you think we're going to get those with the Japanese too? I think we absolutely should, and I think that we will. I think there was a positive statement that came out just this morning um, exactly. on my way here to the studio on the importance of digital trade. Japan has been a leader on digital trade. It's also obviously very important to their economy, and I think they see the larger importance. We work very closely with the Japanese government, as we do with governments around the world, and so I think it's a really positive place for the United States and Japan. Can you tell us what the statement was and why it was significant? Um, it was a relatively short press release that came out of USTR about the discussions that were happening um, between trade ministers, but it highlights the importance of digital trade. And uh, I don't want to overstate it, um, but given in a very short statement, um, there was agreement on highlighting the importance of digital trade. We think that's really, we think yeah, that I, is absolutely the right way to go and very positive. I'm glad you brought it up. I noticed the Japanese 
uh, Minister Motegi gave a press interview yesterday, and I think from the article I saw, it looks like he mentioned digital trade three times. And I was a little bit surprised because everybody was expecting this to be about cars and agriculture. Uh, and it was. And those uh, are important issues. And, and yes. But digital trade but is really here, important, here too. suddenly, digital trade, which nobody was writing about in the run-up to these talks, all of a sudden is right there in the middle of the agenda. But digital trade means you're doing your job. Digital trade is the place where we can make progress. Yeah, it's And kind of, it's really important. If, if I remember the TPP negotiations, the U.S. and Japan were very closely allied in the, the whole digital talks during that negotiation. So it's, right. it's an area we can work together and ought to. So while we're doing the world tour then, why don't you talk well, can to Can we stay on USMCA for a second? Because I have a question about USMCA. Go ahead. You mentioned the digital trade rules in USMCA. Do you think they're a step in the right direction? I gather you do. But are there any rules that you've come up with or, or that have happened in the USMCA that are particularly groundbreaking or innovative that should make their way into future trade agreements? So we're very supportive of USMCA, um, and we believe all of the digital trade rules and USMCA should be carried into future trade agreements. Again, we actually have some ideas for the round of negotiations, whether we'd be with Japan or the UK or the European Union. There's even further places we could go, and that makes sense, right, because technology keeps evolving. So there's no digital trade agenda that should ever be static. So we will continue to think um, and be as smart and creative as we can about ways to continue to broaden and make the digital trade agenda as comprehensive right. as it can be. But on USMCA specifically, yes, we are supportive of USMCA. We've The digital trade provisions there are a really good precedent um, and really good example. And so we hope that we, you know, we hope that USMCA passes. I got a question for our listeners, some of whom I think are probably not quite as nerdy and, and wonky as Scott and I are. Can you just... Could they, not be possible. It, it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not quite that nerdy. They enjoy anyway. trade a lot. They're in the field. Nerdy and wonky? I'm not sure. Well, yeah. for the lay person, let's do it that way. I will be theological for a moment. My son went to divinity school, so we use <laughs> those kinds of terms a lot. Anyway... Can you just give a simple explanation of why data localization requirements are bad? What what happens if you have those requirements that's not a good thing? So I was thinking maybe one thing I should step back, because digital trade is sort of a vague term. So when we say digital trade, we mean a whole host of things. But one of the things that we mean for sure, um, and, and probably the top priority in our digital trade agenda is pushing back against data localization or having a default rule that data should be able to move back and forth across borders and among countries with as little friction as possible, um, right? And so, you know, we understand that there's always going to be some exceptions to that. We're supportive of those. We think where there are exceptions, they should be clear, they should be narrowly targeted, they should be appropriate. But again, the baseline rule, the default rule, the standard rule should be that data can move back and forth. And the reason that that is important is because the emerging technologies that our companies create, and then again, they create that for the purpose of letting other companies, whether it's the agriculture sector, the manufacturing sector, the automobile sector, healthcare sector, do what they do even better, can't exist without data being able to move back and forth. Cloud computing can't exist. The, the architecture of the internet means that it will not exist if there are significant restrictions on data. The efficiencies that come from cloud computing for big companies, but for all the small companies and the startups that use cloud computing, don't exist in a world of data localization. And then if you're thinking about even more uh, recent emerging technologies, artificial intelligence, 
blockchain, um, all the breakthroughs in terms of data analytics, again, don't exist unless data can move back and forth. But this is borders. actually penetrating so really conventional industries. So if you look at goods trade, goods trade is as old as the Phoenicians, okay? But today, goods are have much more digital content than ever. And this is um, actually McKinsey Global Institute just released a study on global value chains. One of the points they made is the, is the services content, especially the digital services content of goods, is increasing very, very rapidly. And it's almost unseen by compu- by by consumers. You know, so you think of a, a car in the 1960s, maybe the most complicated electronic piece of equipment was the AM radio. <clears throat> Today, the cars have guidance systems and they have you know, probably, probably more bytes of data than a space shuttle. And millions of lines of code. Right. So all that affects your members, but it affects the, the, the very goods that are the basis of the trading system. I'm so glad you said that because that's one of the things I think is really important. I mean, you know, the, the companies that I represent, like Salesforce and Apple and Microsoft and IBM and Autodesk and Adobe and Symantec and all these software companies that are doing great work. But the reason, again, that they're doing that work is to support all of these different industry sectors. And so, you know, the technology that they create for other companies to use doesn't work and without data flow. So, I mean, I think it really comes down well, to a question okay, of, do you want to move into the future or do you not? Yeah, but let's talk about the, the not working thing. Pretend you're a bank, okay? So one of the people that takes advantage of the services that, that uh, your guys produce. I would love to pretend that I'm a, <laughs> I'd love to be. A, I'd love to be a bank. Because <laughs> I understand that your children are consistently pretending you're a bank. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, no doubt about that. Anyway, you're a bank. Uh, and you're in uh, Istanbul, and the Turkish government tells you you have to store your data locally. So why does that cripple you? You've got computers there. You've got servers there. Why don't you just keep it there? Why is this bad for you as a bank? So I think it's possible that if, as a bank, the only customers that you ever have are going to be located only in the vicinity where you are, and you have no interest in using cloud computing or anything to make your own internal computer systems more efficient and more secure... So if you, if you want to have a computer system that is less efficient and more expensive, if you want to have a computer system that's less secure and you want to only serve customers in your immediate vicinity, you're, then you're probably going to be okay. And you can only right? offer your customers services locally. Right. It's, you can't yeah. have an international wire transfer, for instance. Right, exactly. Or something it's, like that. I mean, it's, I think within a very small sphere, absolutely, there are services that can be offered. But it's an enormous impediment. And then if you think about services that are used by a whole range of mm-hmm. sectors, so cybersecurity is something that comes to mind. And cybersecurity threats, by definition, are happening around the world. Oh, you to just the mentioned ex- Symantec's one of your members. Right, exactly. Right. And, and uh, Splunk, and we have a number of others that are leaders in the security space. So they are watching threats from around the world, analyzing them in real time, and then pushing that information out to their customers. Again, literally can't happen unless they have the ability to be able to see and collect data from across the world and do that um, as quickly and as seamlessly as possible. There's a company named Splunk. There is, and they're doing great work. Of course there's a company named Splunk. <laughs> Does that surprise you? A little bit. You, of course, know all about them, right? <laughs> no, no, in Palo Alto, California. Yeah. No I mean, it, just, it just sounds like a, a company that's in the digital space. And growing very fast. Listeners I'll, take note. I'll, my wife handles uh, the, our investments. I'll consult with her about okay, that. Okay, all right. Good look deal. up Splunk. Speaking of investments, one of the things that people are thinking a lot about when they're thinking about investments lately and also uh, when they're thinking about digital is they're thinking about privacy. 
How are you thinking about privacy um, in your space? So privacy is maybe our number one issue around the world this year. It's enormously important. Obviously, in the United States, there's a discussion happening around federal privacy legislation in a way that has never happened before. And so, again, just to be clear about our position, we want to see federal privacy legislation passed, but we want to see privacy legislation passed that is very strong and very high standard. Our companies are very focused on the privacy maintaining the privacy and the security of the data that they're entrusted with. And so we are very supportive of privacy legislation, but at a very high standard. Um, but it's not just in the United States. You know, as you as you may know, Europe recently passed a significant piece of privacy legislation called the GDPR, and there General are now data protection regulation, regulation. Right. exactly. And um, there's an implementation process going on now across Europe. India is looking at its privacy legislation in a way that candidly gives us some concerns. This is why whenever we're on a European website, we have to like accept something or we have to check something, and that right. is that is one of the ancillary effects of GDPR, probably not the most um, not the most helpful, but GDPR is a fairly comprehensive piece of privacy regulation, and one of the ways that it manifests itself on kind of the consumer side are the the accepting boxes that you're seeing pop up. Are your up members now. okay with GDPR? Our members are supportive of GDPR. You know, we worked... Um, Would they support GDPR for the U.S. adopting GDPR? So we would like to see the U.S. adopt something that's as high a standard as GDPR. I think there are aspects of GDPR, which was you know drafted for the European civil code system, that wouldn't graft that naturally onto the American common law system. And there's some aspects of GDPR that have free speech implications. So cut and paste, absolutely, that wouldn't make sense. But something that is interoperable with the GDPR and is something that is as high a standard as the GDPR, absolutely. I would think we would want to show our own leadership in this space too, though. Are there signs in the Congress or the signs of the administration of developing a an American GDPR? I wouldn't characterize it as an American GDPR, but there are definitely uh, members of Congress that are hard at work on drafting privacy legislation. There's actually been a number of bills that have been introduced, and the Senate Commerce Committee has a very significant process going on internally right now in drafting a piece of legislation. I was fortunate enough to be asked to testify in front of Senate Commerce a few weeks ago and give them BSA's views on on where privacy legislation should go. And we've done a lot of work internally. Again, I mean, our companies have been thinking about privacy for years. It's really sure. baked into their products and the services that they offer. So well, I mean, it's if you think a about big it, issue for it's, us. It's all, you know, Tim Cook mostly talks about privacy. It's a very... CEO of Apple. I mean, he right. mostly talks about privacy. And a lot of the CEOs of the companies that you represent talk about privacy and actually do things about privacy. Whether they get credit for it or not, I don't know, because this is such a you know, freak out privacy world we're in right now. But it, let's step back for a second. Some of the news you, reports we've seen lately I will about send privacy. you my column on this. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, no, no, send it. Victoria started by saying her members are global in their orientation, which is wonderful. But you're facing a situation where you're going to wind up with a patchwork quilt here. You have the European regulation, you have American regulation, Indian regulation. How and do you the Chinese and so. Chinese, no doubt? How do you get to a point where? where you're basically raising standards instead of complying with 12 or 15 in a, in a universe where they're all pretty similar. Yeah, that's a great point. And that was my kind of allusion to interoperability, which I should probably expand on. I mean, I think it's certainly possible 
and, and probably optimal not to have every country in the world adopt exactly the same regime. But I think having them um, thoughtfully and intentionally drafted in a way that they are at a very high standard so consumers are getting the protection that they need, but also work together in a way that doesn't create conflicts is really important. So and to give you a practical example of that, Japan recently passed a privacy law, um, which again, we worked um, uh, with the Japanese government on that, and they've been real leaders in this space. They also recently got a determination from the European Union that their privacy law was adequate. And adequate sounds like faint praise, but it's just the European term. It's like a C plus. The, yeah. Yes. It's the, <laughs> Good it's the European technical term for an A plus, um, <laughs> meaning that the Europeans recognize the high standard of the Japanese law. Now, the Japanese law is not exactly like GDPR. It mm -hmm. works consistent with GDPR, but it's different in a number of aspects. Also a very high standard, but different. And I think the European Union, um, uh, European Union, sort of officially declaring that the Japanese law was at the high standard of privacy that European law was without Japan passing a law that was exactly like the European law was a really positive and practical and concrete step. So I think we're certainly in the United States, I think our consumers deserve to have a very high standard of privacy legislation as well. That doesn't mean and, and shouldn't mean that it looks exactly like the GDPR. It should be at a high standard, but in a way that works for the United States and also co is consistent and not in violation of other international standards. I'm a communications guy, and this is just a suggestion for the European Union. They might want to use a little bit different language totally than adequate you. when it comes to the United <laughs> States, if they're planning on calling us adequate when it comes to this stuff. Or with any country. I yeah. am totally there with probably you. probably should use a <laughs> little I, bit I hate using their term because yeah. it conveys something that is not actually what is intended by but by, yeah. yes, but by their stand, But by their standards, the best they can say about us is that we're adequate. When we give them ordinary trade terms, we call it most favored. We say, you are the most favored nation. Right. That's right. Yeah. Okay. See, that's that a, sounds that, delightful. That, 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 that is the right. way you, <laughs> I mean, that's, that, that's marketing. That's welcoming. <laughs> and, that, and that is old fashioned American, you know, innovation and ingenuity and making people feel, we, making the customer happy, making people feel good. Well, we dumped that. We, and we dumped it in, in favor of normal trade relations. Yes, that's right. Which is when, adequate. Which is adequate. Which is adequate. Oh my goodness. Well, we better get our... <laughs> Breakthrough. <laughs> that, yeah, that was Senator Moynihan. Senator Moynihan that? and Senator did Roth did it yeah, uh, did that. Uh, us, during the China turned debate. us from most favored into adequate. Bill, I could see you during trade negotiations being like, you know, you guys are kind of adequate. adequate. During trade negotiations, mostly I just try to stay awake. <laughs> the, um, Grading his students' papers, he calls them adequate. Right, 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 right. right. <laughs> but on, I, I'm going to send you my my column because my my column basically says this is your column for CSIS this week. Yes, this called week. Privacy, schmivacy. Okay, great title. And it is its thesis is there is no privacy. You know what you're doing is noble. Keep doing it and hang in there. It's a futile gesture. There is no privacy. The hackers are always going to be one step ahead of you. So it's interesting you said privacy and then you said hackers because I think privacy and security often in the policy wonk world get split apart and they shouldn't, right? Because they're, they're totally really different things. they are, but they're but if you're a person who wants their data to be protected, you, you're not making that distinction, right? And nor should way. you have to make that distinction. You you're David does should be kept private and you should be able to know what's being happening to your data. You should be able to make real choices about that. And your data should also be secure. So the hacker issue is incredibly important. And one thing actually that I'm really proud of that we, um, I think, uh, just uh, 
actually announced today um, that we're going to be launching in a couple of weeks is a new software security standard. So we have been working with our companies for well over a year now on developing um, a very detailed framework on how to ensure that software, and not just the software that our companies um, are developing, but potentially all software, including software that is being embedded into all the devices that Scott talked about, that is being developed in a way that is as safe and secure as possible. So April 30th um, is the date of our official launch, um, and we welcome all of your listeners there. But you know, it is, it's an incredibly important issue. It's one that we've also been working with the U.S. government, the U.K. government, the European Commission, the Japanese government, and others on is there... And again, we're, we're just starting April 30th our, is our launch, but I think the ambition is to get to a place where internationally software is being developed in a way that is as secure as possible. I think is really important here is encryption, sure. right? Mm -hmm. and, and having government policies that support mm -hmm. encryption, not undermine encryption. It's another issue that we've done a lot of work on. Partly our work has been educational, so explaining to policymakers what encryption is. There are different, there are different methods for encryption. Um, so just, you know, trying to explain, and we have found there's a real interest in trying to understand more about encryption, how it works, the different types, um, the pros and cons, but also pushing the pros and cons of different types of encryption, but also pushing for government policies that don't undermine encryption in various right. ways, because it's a really important piece of the security puzzle to and, the extent there is- And more consumers is, are adopting it. They're getting yeah. their own VPNs and things like that, yeah. virtual yeah. private networks. So data right. is access. It's access in a way that's not readable, which right. then mm -hmm. um, largely eliminates the incentive for accessing it. So well, it's, it oh. is both preventative and, you know, it has both a deterrent effect and kind of immediate specific effect. So it's incredibly important. It's an issue that can be controversial at times. But I think, again, many governments around the world are understand it more and more are seeing the value and why it's really important to have encryption and not have government policies that undermine it. Yeah, I think there's a lot of software that has the capability. My sense is that a lot of people don't use it, even if they're able to use it. Right. And so, you know, one of the things that I think is important in security and in privacy is trying to make it as easy for the user as possible. So they should have the ability to make those choices, but they should understand what those choices are and they should be designed in a way so it's really easy for them to be able to implement the choices that they want to make. Well, explain what you mean by the difference between privacy and security. There doesn't necessarily need to be a difference, but I feel like in this space, when people are talking about privacy, a lot of the conversation is around, you know, if you have data that is being used by a consumer-facing platform and it's being monetized in various ways, what are the rules around that? And right, like you look at privacy. a shirt, you look at a shirt at Saks, and then the next time you go online to look at anything, that shirt at Saks is advertised to you across all of your platforms, right. Whereas security, which I personally don't mind. Right, and there, exactly, yeah. there's, a lot, there's a lot of benefit to that. It's really about letting people choose what they want. I think when people hear security, a lot of times the, what they're thinking of then is external criminal actors or external yeah. uh, actors that are hacking into a system people for another purpose. That was not the only thing I was talking right. about, but that's, that's but part I of think it. The, but I think they, they belong together, and I think from a consumer point of view, they should belong together, right? You want your data to be safe and secure. You want it to be used in ways that are appropriate, and I think... And you want your privacy to be protected. Exactly. Right. So I think the... You know, the issues that we're trying to address are when people's data is used in ways that they either 
didn't know about um, or didn't expect and seemed completely inappropriate and unreasonable to them. And so trying to prevent that from happening, but also trying to prevent data from being hacked um, or otherwise end up but, in the hands of bad actors. Yeah, but even if it's not hacked, Andrew and I don't entirely agree on this. I am offended by ads like this. Yeah. Uh, when I buy a book. A lot of people are. Uh, when, I, when I buy a book, I'm happy to buy a book and won't talk about you know how which platform I used to buy the book. I then get for the next forever, uh, uh, you know, emails telling me, you like this, so maybe you'll like this, and right. there's 13 more books. Uh, I mean, for me, the worst manifestation of it is, is when you make a political contribution, because then you're on these lists for life. And, and not only do you get daily requests for more money from the person you made the mistake of donating to in the first place, uh, even after they lose, you get requests for money, but they share the list with other people. So other people of the same political party, usually, and persuasion, uh, although I've gotten on some strange lists, I get, you know, every day now, I get a dozen of these things from all these people asking for money, only one of whom I ever had any communication with in the first place. That offends me, too. Well, we believe that people should have the right to know. And what I mean by that is they should have the right to know what's happening to their data, and they should have the right to control it. And by that, I mean they should have the ability to say no in an effective way to their data being used in ways that they don't agree with. we all agree on that. It's, it's, it's operationalizing with. that that is difficult. I mean, I can give you a whole uh, rant about uh, how why unsubscribe does not work. The, look, the, well, <laughs> the technology... There's a technology part to it, but there's also a legal part to it or a yeah. legislative part to it, and that's one of the things that we're working on. You need I some definitely goofy. want to hear that rant at some point. Well, <laughs> definitely want to Bill hear. just needs some goofy email addresses that he gives out to other people <laughs> yeah. to keep his normal email account clear of this right. stuff. His interest is you guys understand yeah, this okay. stuff. You understand multiple emails. you got to help him out. I mean, he's... He's like Secret he's had the same email for the last thirty five years. <laughs> he's getting like you know, and so he's he's he trade guy one hundred and sixteen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He he needs multiple you know online points of entry. Right, right? exactly. Have you ever looked at your spam file? You know, uh, the stuff that gets filtered I, out. I figured it's there for a reason. I had to the other day because my son insisted that something that was coming from his school that I had to approve was stuck in the spam, which it wasn't. So I looked, and it was just absolutely nothing that I wanted to click on. Including the no, thing but that, it's you know, I, right. But it's it's the volume. I mean, there's, there's hundreds a day. It's huge volume. It's amazing. No, it's it's enormous. The amount of email that we have coming in, um, and the amount of email, quite frankly, that CSIS sends out, is you know, it's a lot. It's quite a lot. And I still maintain, though, that from a communication standpoint, email can be the most effective way of communicating. Sure. I mean, I said we send out a newsletter every night that I write called The Evening, and it's got almost 30,000 subscribers now, and it's people who want to opt in, people who want to read what, you know, we're doing and what some of our, um, you know, peer organizations are doing in the spaces around the issues that we cover. Well, I want to sign up. Oh, Make we'll it get 30,000 in one. All right, we'll get you on it. We will you absolutely know, I, get you on it. I never opted in, but I get it. Well, the, there you go. I mean, you're just, you, know, you got to get these, your interns on this, man. This you're, is you're one really... of these problems that the Jetsons never talked about in their show. So How many of your 30,000 are really voluntary? That's what That's what I want to know. I believe they're, I, I, until this moment, I believe they were all voluntary. They're there with love. We have, a very, we have a very small unsubscribe rate, and our unsubscribe actually works. For the record, I like it. Oh, good. That's good to know. <laughs> but, Thank you. But Thank you, uh, I, I, I didn't it. sign up for it. <laughs>
I think when you work at CSI, it's like you're supposed yeah, maybe, to get it. Maybe, maybe. You get it. And maybe I thought since like you're on the show, we're all on the show together. You're featured we, in the newsletter. You promote the show and you're featured in the You might want to get it. Actually, I get it twice because I get it at my Kelly Dry address ah, too. Ah, okay. So you're really hit. So it's really twenty nine nine ninety nine. Okay, because, well, at least uh, it doesn't go in your spam. It does not go in my spam. There you true. go. There you go. All right. So should we talk about WTO? Um, this is something that I know is Bill's favorite and Scott's favorite subject, um, e-commerce talks. Is that something you're involved in? Yes. So it is. You know, we're it's, it's exciting to see the WTO working on something. Um, we are supportive of the e-commerce talks. The United States has been really supportive of the e-commerce talks, which is great. So Are you optimistic about them? We're all supportive. I think there's some real potential there. Really? I mean, okay. you know, I spent a lot of time in Geneva at an earlier point in my career. And so I've seen the WTO when it's very active. And, you know, then it's been in a period of time when it's less active. I believe in the WTO as an institution. So, yeah, I think there's some real potential there. This is a project that could get the WTO off, off dead center, which is it is, seems unable to do much of anything on the negotiating front now. But this is something of a broad interest. You have, what, 71 members who are part of the negotiation. This could actually move it forward and, and provide the incentive to do other things as well. So we're, I'm hopeful. I agree. Yeah, I think, I think we all are. It's a good example of what we've talked about with respect to the WTO in the past in that because of the difficulty of producing a multilateral round uh, and the obvious difficulty of the Doha round is people are moving towards coalitions of the willing. In effect, we're, I think we're not supposed to use that term, but that's really what it is. Uh, this is a pretty big coalition. If they can actually pu- put it together, that would be terrific. I think the, the big thing people are worried about is that China is one of the 71, and that may make it complicated. Well, Victoria, thank you so much for being here today. We're going to have you back to talk about the uh, restaurant scene in New Orleans, <laughs> the music scene in New Orleans. We'll talk about Tipitina's. We'll talk about your new restaurant in New Orleans. What's Fantastic. the name of it? Jewel of the South. Jewel of the South. So you can't. You got to hit Jewel of the South when you go to the Big Easy next time. We will talk about Tipitina's. We'll talk about uh, the Howlin' Wolf, Muddy Waters, all the, the Maple Leaf, uh, Giacomo, some of my favorite, favorite places, which I'm going to get the trade guys to do a live show from Tulane at some point down the line. And they, they, they're they there. Yeah, just make it happen. Be amazing. We're going to do a live podcast from Tulane. Thank you so much for being here. We love these issues. Follow them closely. And we'd love to have you back as soon as we can. Thank you. That'd be great. To our listeners, if you have a question for the trade guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it. We're also now on Spotify, so you can find us there when you're listening to the Rolling Stones or you're listening to Tom Petty or whatever you're listening to. Thank you, trade guys. Thanks, Thank you. You've been listening to the Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.